0: Well, good morning. We had a good time uh, Thursday over at Glenview serving hamburgers and hot dogs to the staff there, and we were so thankful that the rain gave us a, a window of a few hours there where we could do that, but the wind made up for it. So uh, appreciate uh, Mike Hughes helping me keep the fire lit in the grill and getting all the hamburgers grilled. And so as the staff came through, we had uh, one of them that made a comment uh, to uh, some of those that were serving uh, helping them with uh, the chips and uh, accessories, and so uh, she said that she had worked at another another school, but she had never been involved somewhere that a church like Summers Avenue was so involved with a school. And so she was really bragging on our connection and what we have done and been doing for the last uh, handful of years uh, for the staff there at Glenview. So that is a a testament to you and to our volunteers that go and, and help us out each month. And so we're looking forward, Lord willing, to a good school year in the fall. And I know, I'm sorry teachers, I said school year in the fall, didn't I? So please don't, don't stone me on this first day, first week of summer. So, uh, but we're looking forward to another good year with them. And I appreciate the uh, congregation support over this last school year and, and providing things for these teachers and staff. And so it, it takes time and it takes effort to build a relationship. And we're starting to see some, some fruit of that. And so we continue to pray that, that not just our physical presence, but hopefully we can find some, some spiritual doors uh, that will open as we build those relationships with the teachers and faculty there. So, You know, in in a society today, if you look around, it seems that you constantly hear debates about fairness. What is fair? And so we hear that people who earn more money They ought to pay more taxes because that's only fair. And those who don't make as much money, well, they ought to benefit more from from government aid because that's only fair, right? And so kids cry unfair when they don't get something another kid gets. Or one social group claims that they're not being treated fairly. So who created this concept of fairness? Where did this all come from? Well, like any English word, fair... When you look at the word itself, it's got multiple meanings. That's the beauty of our English language. And so Webster defines fair as being marked by impartiality and honesty, free from self-interest, prejudice, or favoritism, sufficient but not ample. And so other definitions include this, "...in accordance with the rules or standards, without cheating or trying to achieve unjust advantage." And so then you go to the synonyms. you got the definitions and you got synonyms. So you've got like just or honest or equitable are synonyms that are offered for this word fair or fairness. And so given any definition or synonym, it's difficult really to understand what is fair. What is fair? And So especially when it seems fairness is such a subjective occurrence because it depends on what I think fair is, what it looks like to me. So fairness as our society lifts it up, it doesn't seem to mean equal opportunity. Fairness seems to mean, as you observe the, the culture around us now, it seems to mean that I must do at least as well, but preferably better than you, regardless of my effort. That's fair to me, right? And so it seems that the fairness debate is heard nowhere louder than in our own justice system. And so we want... Or rather, perhaps we demand fairness when it comes to handing out justice. And there's another cat that seems impossible to herd. Justice. What is justice? Justice for many people equates to fairness. And so while justice is important to almost everyone, it means different things. It means different things to different groups. And so, for instance, you have social justice, which is the notion that everyone deserves equal economic and political and, and social opportunities, irrespective of their race or their gender or their orientation or their religion. And then you've got distributive justice that we hear about, and that refers to equitable allocation of assets in a society. Everybody gets equal stuff. And so you've got environmental justice, and that's the fair treatment of all people with regard to environmental factors, so that's you know clean water and clean air things like that. Uh, restorative or corrective justice that seeks to to make whole those who've suffered unfairly in some way. And then you have retributive justice, and that seeks to punish wrongdoers, but to do it objectively and proportionately, evenly. And then procedural justice that refers to implementing legal decisions in accordance with fair, unbiased processes. And so while legal and political systems that maintain law and order, those are desirable, they cannot accomplish either of those unless they achieve justice. And so, in many ways, the American legal system is envied. But justice for all will continue to be this noble pursuit without end as long as we live in this world because justice, in my mind, tends to be skewed by my own satisfaction with a particular outcome. So what is enough? How how am I satisfied with this idea? Well, there's an ancient term, lex talionis, which is Latin, and it means the law of retaliation. And so the concept of this law of retaliation refers to the idea that for for punishment, for a misdeed, it's got to be based on some form of of equivalence. So you examine what the misdeed was, what the the injury or the action was, And the punishment for that has got to to be equal to that, or at least equivalent to it. And so, rather than just some unrestricted random revenge. So there's a standard there. And so the simplest expression of this lex talionis is in the biblical summation that we find in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 23. But if there is serious injury, then you will give a life for a life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And so we recognize this, right? We recognize this phrasing. People who aren't even religious can quote this verse. Whether or not they even know it's in the Bible. They can quote this. They know this. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth, right? And so this has been the basis of societal justice since even before God was working to set up this this people of Israel in the desert of Sinai. So when humanity is responsible for handing out justice, there's got to be a standard. There must be a standard by which we measure the portion. Because you see, if you intentionally or unintentionally cut me off on the road, <laughs> that I don't, I don't want to position myself to then cut you off in response. I don't want to do that. See, what I want to do is I want to run you off the road and I want to watch your car flip over three or four times and I want to stand over you on the ground of the pavement there while the fluids are sizzling on that pavement. And I want to look at you and say, was it worth it? I mean, that's what some people would want to do, right? So the purpose of this law was to ensure that punishment was proportionate to the offense. The penalty must fit the crime. And so the phrase, eye for an eye itself, was simply a formula that when you look at historical writings it was rarely if ever strictly applied and so it only meant that the compensation had to be appropriate for whatever loss occurred so for instance a man killed an ox another man's ox you know he didn't necessarily have to replace the ox he could write him a check for the the cost and give that to the man, the man can go get, you know, his own ox. So you'd have to bring an ox. So there was some variation in this that developed over time. And so only in the case of premeditated murder does it seem that life for a life was literally demanded. Otherwise, they worked out other arrangements. And so this approach was, was pretty effective in preventing tribal wars. And I think that was, was God's intent when he laid this out for Israel as they were coming together, all these different tribes, these different families, and now living in this community. Because consider this conversation, if you remember Huckleberry Finn and Buck. So here's a conversation between those two. What's a feud, Buck? Well, where was you raised, Huck? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers on both sides, they goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in and, and by and by everybody's killed off and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow and takes a long time. <laughs> so we understand that. So if the, if the initial offense is met with a fair and proportionate penalty, then that's the end of the matter. There's not this this generational feuding that goes on to make up for something that happened years ago. And so the intent of the law of retaliation was to undermine, was to put a stop to the personal vendetta. And so this was an instrument of the court. It was a means of of satisfying legal demands and and the penal sanctions of the state. That was the purpose of it. So God set these boundaries for us to stay within when it comes to having been wronged by someone else. And so then when we read about this principle of, of, of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's always given in terms of Israel's civil law. It's not given in terms of personal retribution. And so this was guidance for those who were overseeing legal matters. When you're handling cases for these people, this is how you handle it. This is your, your, your judgment lane that you stay in. But the world, however, seems locked into this stubborn cycle of indulgence and, and violent retribution. You know, we've got to make up for whatever's happened to us. And so there's a phrase I would say today that Christians need to remove from our vocabulary. He started it. We need to remove that phrase. They started it, right? Because we need Jesus' witness to shake us out of our complacency and show us who we really are. Living in this world, we are residents of God's kingdom, and we live by a higher code. And so Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know the law. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. And so the teachers of this law were applying this eye-for-eye principle against personal vengeance. Exactly what it was not intended for. And so what was intended to be a rule of law had become an expectation now. You you should expect my retribution in accord for what you've done to me. And so how are we supposed to deal with the person who does evil to us then? Jesus says what? Do not resist them. Don't resist them. Now you can't go straight English on this word resist either because it doesn't mean, mean don't defend yourself. It doesn't mean stand there and take it. This word means don't respond after the fact with the intent of getting them back in a harmful way, whether actively or passively. And so for us, we think an evildoer is someone who's been inconsiderate for us. They're a mean person. They're an evil person. Why? Because they didn't speak to me. They didn't hold the door open for me. Because they looked at me funny. You know, we've got such childish ways of, of classifying people as evil. We need to get back to the Bible. What the Bible says, evil truly is. And we think somebody who speaks in a harsh tone doesn't obey the laws of decorum. We think that, you know, that, we should, that they should obey when they don't do things our way. We think they're evil. So this word evildoer is referring to someone who intentionally tries or succeeds in doing you harm. That's what an evildoer is. And so here's the nuance. Jesus is not suggesting that we stand idle by While others are being injured. And he's not forbidding us from opposing evil when it threatens ourself or our family. He's forbidding us from taking revenge for purely personal reasons. When there's nothing ultimately at stake except our pride or our reputation or our so called rights. You've impinged. impinged, impinged. You stepped on my rights. I couldn't think of the word I was wanting. So this is talking about taking the law into our own hands for the purpose of exacting personal revenge. This is all about the I'll get even with you for this. That's the attitude that this presents. And so it's utterly foreign. And it's opposed to Christianity. Whether it pops up in the office, whether it's you know at school, whether it's on the athletic field, or whether it's in a personal relationship. This attitude of get even or get back at somebody is completely foreign to Christianity. And so Jesus is not advocating temperamental weakness. He's not advocating moral compromise or or political anarchy or total pacifism. His words are not a license for the thug or the tyrant. Christians are to resist evil in society. And so Jesus is calling on us, though, to resist this urge to retaliate and to be willing, if need be, to even suffer additional pain at the hands of those who hate us. And so John Stott notes that that Jesus teaches not the irresponsibility which encourages evil, but the forbearance which renounces revenge. Jesus didn't accept evil. Jesus resisted retaliation. There's a difference there. And so, verse 39, whoever strikes you on the right cheek turn the other to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and to take your tunic, give him your coat also. Now this teaching has nothing to do with the question of legitimacy of human courts or the law or whether we should or should not even fight a frivolous or even a legitimate lawsuit. So Jesus is referring rather to our willingness. Our willingness to set aside personal rights and to even make sacrifices compatible with the nature and the demands of love. Because a Christian must operate. We are called to operate from a position, a platform of love. And so we still use this idea today. You know, it was, a, it was a slap in the face, right? And so what you're supposed to do when someone insults you is what? What are you supposed to do when someone shows contempt for you or, or deeply offensive to you? What are you supposed to do, Jesus? You turn the other cheek. You turn the other cheek. What does that mean? You don't respond to them the way they have treated you. And so we don't have the right to return fire with equal proportion just because somebody's harmed us. And so someone hurts us and we want to hurt them. And we think we're justified in doing so. But Jesus reveals that we do not retaliate when we are harmed or when we are insulted. And so if someone takes you to court and someone sues you for your tunic... You volunteer your cloak too. Hey, if this will satisfy this relationship, take this with you. And it's like, huh, oh, what, what is this? Take hey, cloak, tunic, what is all this? Well, under the law of Moses, the, the, the cloak was a possession that was a human right. It was a human right to, to have a cloak. You could not take that from someone or withhold it from someone. And so the cloak provided shelter for those who were out in the elements, whether it was you know, working in the fields or whether they were, you know, did not have shelter. It provided shelter. And so the people who heard Jesus speak, they knew from this passage that no one can permanently take your coat. So it was your inalienable possession. And so they would have realized that the point of this illustration is simply this. There's an occasion that even when the law protects it, it may be necessary to forego our rights because relationship trumps rights. So even those things which we regard as our rights, we have to be prepared to abandon for the sake of love, for the sake of relationship. Why? Because that's how people behave who live under the kingdom reign of God. That is Christian. That is Christian. So Jesus says, you've heard this is allowable. You've heard this said, but I say to you that My disciple must do more to get along with others than the evil that's done to you. So if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. See, a Roman soldier, when Jesus is, is, is telling this, and this is being written, recorded, a Roman soldier within the law could force a non-Roman to, to, to carry his rucksack for a mile. That was by law. And that would ease the soldier's burden. And we don't think anything about this today. We wouldn't think twice in the United States of America of picking up something for a soldier and carrying it as far as they needed us to. We wouldn't think about that. But when Jesus said this, they hated the Romans. They are oppressors. They lived in this military state under the Romans. And so the Roman government was cruel and it was indifferent to the Jews. So imagine this. Imagine you're, you're trying to get the last row of crop... Seated before dark, you've been working all day feverishly in the Middle Eastern heat. And along comes this Roman soldier. And he's like, Hey, Jew, don't make it bad. Take a bad song and make it bad. That's for Larry. That's the Beatles, by the way. Hey, Jew. But he's like, No, Jewish person. You need to carry my rucksack for me. You need to carry this for me. So now here you go. Now you're walking. You're carrying, I don't know, 75 to 100 pounds of of gear a whole mile away from where you want to be, where you need to be. Not to mention the fact you've got to turn around and go back. So you've lost easily an hour if you're high-footing it. You ever feel that way at work? You're trying to get a, a task or a project done? And a supervisor or a coworker comes in and asks you to you know, do something else, de- side rail, de- derails you from, from what you're doing. That never happens to any of us around here. So, What kind of attitude can that evoke? You're in the middle of something. You're, you're focused on this. You've got a deadline to meet. And somebody comes in and says, I need you to do this. How does that make you feel? How well are you going to do what they've asked you to do? What's your attitude going to be? Or how quietly are you going to do it? Or how quiet are you are going to be after you do it? Go with them two miles, Jesus says. A Christian does better than what is done to them. And so if I haven't said it already, this is some of the worst Scripture that we have in the Bible. Now, I'm just being honest. And I, don't, I do not mean it's worse because there's something wrong with it. I mean it's worse because there's something wrong with me. Something wrong with me because I'm human and I'm affected by sin and I'm selfish. And I want what's best for me. And I'm impatient. And I want to retaliate against those who hurt me. Not all the time, but too much of the time. So Jesus says, give to the One who asks you. And do not turn away from the One who wants to borrow from you. And some people have taken this to extremes at the expense of caring for the needs of their family. They've given that up for the sake of something else or someone else. They've given away the farm, as we might say. And so when you see this statement in context, you understand that there are times when we may withhold from others, not because of, of what we're able to do. I could help you, but I don't like you. I could help you, but you did this to me a while back. So I'm going to ignore your need. See, there's a difference there between being able to and wanting to. And so if you're able to help someone else in need, you should do it. And irrespective of who they are or how they've treated you or how they treated their family, if they are in need, the Kingdom of God operates on an economy of love. And so after all, who, who does all this belong to? Look around. Who does anything you can lay your eyes on? Who does that belong to? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It all belongs to God anyway. We are managers of the King's property and there may be times. There will be times when you are able to help someone else and you want to help someone else, but circumstances say, there's a voice that says, there's an intuition that says your benevolence may not actually help them, but in fact may hurt their situation. There are times like that when instead of Helping them, you may enable them or even harm them. And so that's when we have to seek wisdom. We've got to seek wisdom and guidance for that decision. But Jesus' warning here is about making our decisions based on unloving, selfish attitudes. And so when, no, when love no longer has to wait on the performance of others, this great transformation can take place. And so as Jesus goes on to say in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. by the Pharisees, we've, we've seen over these last few weeks how Jesus calls His disciples to, to be righteous, to be God followers who, who's, whose lives exceed that of what these religious leaders are, are, are putting on a show to be. And so the law of Moses had been perverted by them and they deliberately weakened the standard of, of this command by omitting the words, as yourself, from the current teaching. They just took that out. And so they narrowed the objects of love by insisting that the word neighbor referred only to fellow Jews. And the Pharisees took this even more shallow and they insisted it only meant other Pharisees. So I'm only going to treat other Pharisees the way I want to be treated. And so they added a phrase to the original command. Hate your enemy. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, right? That's not in Scripture. They added that hate your enemy. It seemed logical to them. Okay, if you're supposed to love your neighbor, then I guess you're supposed to hate your enemy. That was their logic. But nowhere in the law of Moses is anyone commanded to hate anyone. And so that's the problem with much of our decision making today. We rely more on human logic than God's wisdom. And so we worry about how warm and forgiving are we supposed to be. To what degree... You know, how much am I supposed to forgive my brother? Seventy times seven? That's a lot, right? What degree am I supposed to be warm and loving to those who are hostile and undeserving of that? How much ought we to love this person? Which person are we to love unconditionally? And, and which are to, to, to love only if they do this or that for us? And so you love math, maybe? If you're weird, (laughs) you may love math, but Jesus shows us there's no calculations in love. Love unconditional. So sometimes the only way we can love our enemies may be in prayer for them. Maybe the only only way we can be around them is if we're praying for them. Maybe there's there's a physical issue that we can't get past right now. We can still pray for them if we can't do anything else. And so the hostility and animosity... Between you and your enemy may be so great that prayer is the only way that you can really fulfill this command. So one of the more common charges against Christianity is that we believers do not practice what we preach. We don't walk the talk. So we don't behave as we believe. And Jesus says here, prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. So live in conformity with who you really are. Show them that you're a child of God. So, nothing will be more quick to capture the attention of non Christians than loving your enemies because it just is not the way humanity leans. It is so contrary to human nature, it'll blow their mind. So, he says, Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And perfect here doesn't mean without error doesn't mean without sin. It means complete. It's the same perfect that, that is part of that word shalom that we've talked about over the weeks. You know, where it's this, it's this, this wholeness, this, this all put together so that you will be that. So be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So simply put, we are to love our enemies because that's what God does with His enemies. Our motivation is not that experience has proven that love is, is, is better than to hate. Or because love is ultimately more profitable or more conducive to happiness or any such reason. That's not our motivation. We are to love our enemies because that's what God is like. And we are to imitate our Heavenly Father. It's plain and simple. It's plain, not as simple, right? And so if we love our children, our brothers, our sisters, our wives, our our, our husbands, and only them, then what makes us any different from anyone else? And if that's all it means to be a Christian, then why be a Christian at all? Non-Christians do that. They love those who love them and can do for them. If that's all that we do, then why did God bother to send His Son to die for us? We could have loved in that way without grace. We could have loved the people that are loving to us without the help of God's Spirit. Without Christ. Even tax collectors love other tax collectors, right? Right? So our love is to be the sort that cannot be explained in merely human terms. It's, it's, it's otherworldly. It's eternal. It's heavenly realm. It isn't enough simply to refrain from retaliating. It's not enough just to hold back. We are to bless those and pray for those who harm us. And I don't know who said it, but I agree with this. To return evil for evil is demonic. To return good for good is human, but to return good for evil is divine. So consider this, in 1980, Candace Leitner, while still grieving over the death of her 13-year-old daughter who was struck by a hit-and-run drunk driver, she began a quest to change the world's perspective and laws on drinking and driving. And we know that organization today as MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Or in 1981, John Walsh, after his son, was murdered. John Walsh became a crusader for justice by creating a a television show and hosting this television show which which highlighted some of the most notorious criminals. It's called America's Most Wanted. And that show and his efforts were responsible for the capture of, of thousands of notorious criminals over its course. And he's still instrumental in facilitating federal law. And one of them is such as the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. And then in 1995, Colleen Nick began a movement to fight for the intervention and the education and legislation to reduce child abductions after her daughter Morgan Nick was abducted from a well-populated community park. And I don't know the faith of these people. I don't know what their faith stance is, but I know that their actions, or should I say their reactions, they're certainly Christ-like. That's a Christian response. Jesus' followers go above and beyond. They don't look for doing the minimum for others. They go the extra mile. They give more than what's required. More than what's expected. They don't look for the least that they can do. God's people ask, what more can I do? What else can I do? And Paul tells us that in loving our enemies, we will overcome evil. Because when your enemy receives good for evil, When your response to them is something good, a blessing, it both surprises them and it shames them. And one of those responses may have the potential to transform their heart. And so from the mouth of a man whose heart was changed by knowing and by following Jesus, as we read earlier, Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.19, For this finds God's favor. If because of conscience towards God, someone endures hardships in suffering, Unjustly, For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you recall, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. And when He was maligned, He did not answer back. When He suffered, He threatened no retaliation but committed himself to God who judges justly. And so must we be. Must we continue to strive to be and encourage each other to be and ask God's strength to be one who when we are maligned, we do not answer back. And when we suffer, and we are threatened, we do not retaliate. But we commit Ourselves and we commit whatever situation to God. God Himself who judges justly, which is something I can never do, and nor can you. And this morning, the great just judge who is fair and impartial, He has told us that there is no one, no one beyond the grasp of sin. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us, all the world, God loved so that He sent His Son to die in our place for those transgressions that we commit. And all He asks in return is our following. Our love and our devotion to Him so that our lives bring glory to Him. Not in the sunshine only but also in the storms of life. And so this morning, maybe there's something in your life. Maybe there's a burden that you're carrying. Maybe it's a burden of relationship for someone else. Relationship that's been fractured by something maybe you did or someone else did. It's time to give that up. It's time to give that over to God. It's time to release your heart from those feelings so that the Spirit of Christ can fully encompass your being. And if you're not a child of God, then today is the day of salvation. Will you not confess Christ as Lord and Savior and commit your life to Him? Repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can receive the gift of God's Spirit. Be added to His eternal kingdom. A kingdom that we all look forward to. And a kingdom, a kingdom come that we are living as an example of today. Just a glimpse of the glory to come. We're going to stand now and sing a song of encouragement. If we can help you in any way this morning, will you come? Lay your-